All right, Zephaniah. As believers, we long for and pray for revival. By revival, we can either mean a multitude of persons coming to know the Lord for the first time or a season of spiritual growth in the life of a church. Nothing wrong with praying for that kind of revival. And we see throughout history many revivals breaking out in response to or at least in conjunction with prayer. There's always the argument, does prayer bring revival or does revival bring prayer? All we know is that they always go together. But at the same time, it's possible to experience revival and to even be a part of it, but not really be changed all that much. We can and should pray for revival, but what we can and should do even more is pursue revival for ourselves. While we get a quick start look of this book, Zephaniah, I want to keep in mind that prayer for revival should look inward first. It should cause me to ask, am I pursuing the things that speak of revival in my own life rather than just hoping God will touch others so that I end up getting swept along as well? Zephaniah must have seemed out of touch with the times in which he lived. He announced God's imminent and catastrophic judgment, but he did so during a time of revival. The nation had been suffering from the corrupt reigns of kings Manasseh and Ammon, but in the eighth year of Josiah's reign, the king's heart was turned to the Lord, and in the twelfth year, he instituted a program of moral and religious reforms. Later, in the course of repairing the broken-down temple, the high priest found a copy of the book of the law, long neglected under the reigns of Manasseh and Ammon, and this led to an even greater reform, even revival, in around 621 B.C. Yet here was Zephaniah declaring the day of the Lord, the impending day of God's judgment and wrath. How could, be, how could he be so out of touch with what was happening? Well, he wasn't, of course. The revival under King Josiah was impressive, but immediately after his death, Josiah's own sons plunged the nation back into idolatry. And in just a few short years, the Jews would be taken captive to Babylon. What happened to the revival? Why did it fail? Well, the Lord showed Zephaniah two responses among the Jews to King Josiah's reforms and the ensuing revival. In chapter 1, the majority of Jews were shown to be only outwardly reformed. And then in the first three chapter, uh, verses excuse me, of chapter 2, you see that only a very small minority of Jews were shown to be inwardly transformed. And so revival that leads only to outward reform, that's going to fail. There must be an inward transformation of the heart. And so what we see is, obviously because Josiah was the king and he was revived and he um, could set the pace, as it were, and set the tone, it seemed like the nation was experiencing a time of revival, but it really wasn't because it was all outward, it was all reform, not transformation. The first nine minor prophets ending with Zephaniah all precede the Babylonian invasion and captivity. Then the final three, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, they're going to deal with events after the Jews return from Babylon to Judah. Zephaniah comes last in biblical order of those who preceded because he summarized all the warnings of the other eight. It's as if he was saying, the revival of King Josiah, it's the last chance to get right with God before it's too late. 
Those who wanted to take his warning seriously would have looked for the signs that their inward lives were transformed. Zephaniah warned of the impending invasion by Babylon and of the day of the Lord, the final and universal judgment at the end of human history. Looking still further into God's plans for his people, he foretold Judah's return from Babylon and the final triumphant page of human history, the glorious millennial kingdom of God. How much Zephaniah knew? We don't know. It's, it's always interesting to me as I read the prophets, especially to remember that Peter in his epistles said that these guys, uh, they prophesied and they spoke truth, but they didn't understand everything that they were saying. They didn't have a complete revelation uh, in the word of God the way we do today. And, and so Zephaniah one minute is talking about uh, the day of the Lord as if it is the time of the Babylonian captivity, and the next minute he's looking far into the future, talking about what we know today as the great tribulation, and then beyond that to the kingdom of God on the earth. Now, Zephaniah is the first of the generation of prophets, which will include Jeremiah, Habakkuk, Obadiah, and Ezekiel, men who will not only proclaim God's judgment on Judah and Jerusalem, but who will also be caught up in it themselves. Some of them will live right through the disaster as God's representatives and commentators announcing and interpreting the event. So when you were, um, if you were with us for our Sunday morning studies in Jeremiah, uh, we got towards the end of the book and we saw how Jeremiah got caught up in uh, the activities of the captivity. And same thing with Habakkuk when we looked at that recently, uh, how he predicted the coming of Babylon and then he talked about how everything in the fields would fail and there'd be no crops and, and, and no livestock, but he would yet praise the Lord. And so these guys were going to be a part of it. Ezekiel <coughs> prophesying to the Jews in the captivity in Babylon, actually being part of that captivity. And so uh, interesting group of prophets. And so verse 1 of chapter 1, the word of the Lord which came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Jedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, I will utterly consume everything from the face of the land, says the Lord. I will consume man and beast. I will consume the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, and the stumbling blocks along with the wicked. I will cut off man from the face of the land, says the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off every trace of Baal from this place, the names of the idolatrous priests with the pagan priests, those who worship the host of heaven on the housetops, those who worship and swear oaths by the Lord, but who also swear by Milcom, and those who have turned back from following the Lord and have not sought the Lord nor inquired of him. And so you get a general feel for what was going on in Judah. Uh, even though there was this time of revival, it would be uh, followed by this return to uh, what had become the norm for the Jews. And Zephaniah describes three kinds of people or three kinds of characteristics in these verses. Very interesting. First of all, there were those who had forsaken Jehovah and only worshipped idols. They turned their backs on Judaism altogether and they were completely into the pagan rituals. <clears throat> then there were those who worshipped both Jehovah and the idols. They continued to go to the temple 
went through all the motions and the rituals and the sacrifices, but they also added to their worship of of, uh, Jehovah, the worship of idols. And then there were those who had forsaken the Lord openly and wanted nothing to do with him uh, and and were completely apostate. Um, Now, obviously we want to examine ourselves and be sure we're not in one of those groups. And it's especially dangerous for us uh, in category two. Probably, uh, you know, you wouldn't be here tonight if you had forsaken the Lord openly and wanted nothing to do with him or were worshiping, uh, uh, had forsaken him to worship idols. But uh, obviously it's possible for Christians to think that they're worshiping God but also be practicing idolatry. And uh, that old line that you've heard a million times in churches, if you've been in a church a million times, uh, you know, anything can be an idol, anything, anyone. Uh, And some of us, if we're honest in our lives, uh, we can look back in our lives and think of times, maybe even as Christians, when something really commanded our attention more than it should. And and it it began to take the place of the Lord, or sadly, sometimes it does take the place of the Lord. A lot of people today uh, who profess to have faith in Jesus Christ uh, actually are pursuing some idol in their life. They've put usually another person in the place of Jesus. Uh, and, and they say, well, no, I'm still a Christian. I love the Lord. Uh, I'm still worshiping God, but I'm disobeying him at the same time in this relationship that I'm in. And essentially, you've made that person an idol. And so it's true that an idol can be anything, but that sometimes it's such a sweeping statement that we, well, since an idol can be anything, uh, we don't really look into our lives and say, well, is there something in my life that I would consider idolatry or that might be considered an idol? Has something taken the place that Jesus should have? And uh, there's nothing wrong with examining ourselves because this is what happens. Uh, you know, Paul in the New Testament, he says that we should. Um, Avoid covetousness, he says, which is idolatry. So if you're thinking, well, I don't have any idols, do you covet anything? Because Paul says coveting something is the kind of the mechanism of idolatry. And so in your, you know, when you're just hanging out with yourself and when you're just thinking and nobody's around, you know, what are you really thinking about? Who are you thinking about? Are you coveting something uh, that you shouldn't. Is there something sinful going on? Paul would say, well, that's idolatry. And so now you're in category two where you come to church and we worship the Lord, but we also have this idol going on. So we want to make sure that that doesn't describe us. Now, the coming judgment is described in verses seven through 18 of this chapter. Zephaniah calls it the day of the Lord. And as I mentioned, it has this twofold meaning. Locally, God's judgments on Israel and Judah in the past could be considered the day of the Lord. It simply means a time of God's direct dealing with them in judgment. But prophetically and technically, it is that future time of judgment when God will pour out his wrath on the whole earth. It's also called in the Bible, I always like to mention that it's also called the day of Jacob's trouble. And so what we call the great tribulation That seven-year period, that's future, that's described from chapters 6 through 19 in the book of the Revelation. It's called the time of Jacob's trouble because it is uh, especially a time when God is preparing the world for the return of Jesus Christ to uh, Israel when all of Israel will be saved and God will establish the kingdom that he promised the first time when Jesus came. And so uh, that's the day of the Lord as we know it. 
in this case, Zephaniah was talking about that, but he was also talking about the Babylonian invasion that began around 606 BC. There were three waves from Babylon ending in 586 BC when Nebuchadnezzar's armies came and destroyed the temple and burned the city and carried folks away captive. Now, verses 14 through 16 use about 11 different words to describe that coming day of the Lord. It says in verse 14, The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hastens quickly. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter. There the mighty men shall cry out. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of devastation and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and alarm against the fortified cities and against the high towers. And so God just piles on the words so that there can be no doubt that he's talking about a literal destruction of the city and its surroundings. Uh, This is not figurative. This is not spiritual. This is not allegorical. This is the Babylonian army coming uh, and destroying and killing and pillaging. Uh, There's no doubt about the extent of it. And and so, you know, as rational people, then we say, why does God do this to the Jews, to his chosen people? Well, you have to recall, they would not repent, and they were therefore in danger of destroying themselves on account of their sin. Um, Kind of a it's a, it's a more of a lesser example, but it popped into my mind, and so it must be meaningful to somebody. Uh, if you've ever read Philip Keller, he has uh, the one book I could recommend of his is A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. It's kind of a Christian classic. And he has a chapter in there where he talks about how a good shepherd, if necessary, to save a wandering sheep, a sheep that will just can't stay, you know, just can't hang out, uh, with the other sheep, just keeps wandering, uh, it's going to get itself killed. It's going it's to fall into a pit. Uh, it's, uh, a cougar's going to get it. A bear is going to get it. Something's going to kill this sheep. And so this sheep, if it just continues to wander and won't obey, the shepherd will break its leg so that it can't go anywhere. And you think, wow, that's, you know. Now, if you just happen by there, you're driving, you know, maybe on your, you know, you're doing some cycling or you're doing some running in the morning or, you know, maybe you're just having coffee on the veranda and you see out there and this shepherd is just breaking this sheep's leg, you're going to call the SPCA. You want to say, no sheeps were harmed in the making of this movie, you know, that kind of a thing. And uh, it's going to freak you out. But if you're, you know, into the shepherding kind of thing, you know that you're acting to save that sheep's life because the alternative is that that sheep is going to go out there and meet Mr. Coyote and, and he's going to become food for some wolf or something like that. And that he's not, it's not going to end well for him. And so it's better to have a broken leg. And in that sense, God in his providence, he could not allow the people from whom the Savior of the whole world was to descend to cease to exist or for that matter, for there to be no believing remnant. And yet this is the track that they were on. They refused as a nation to repent. There was a remnant always of believing Jews, but for the most part, the nation, I mean, they were headed into, not headed into, they were involved in terrible idolatry, horrible wickedness, 
uh, wandering away from the Lord, and God said, I have got to stop this, and he kept sending prophet after prophet and, and plague after plague and drought after drought and all the things that he promised that he would do in Deuteronomy uh, to show them that they were out of his will, and they still thumbed their nose at him, and uh, the best category of people outside of the small remnant were those who were worshiping him and idols at the same time. And if you let that kind of thing go, there wouldn't be any Jews left. And there wouldn't be any line for the Messiah to come through. So God steps in and he says, this is the way that is most likely to bring you to repentance. I'm going to destroy the temple. I'm going to burn the city. I'm going to carry you off to Babylon. And there you're going to be steeped in idolatry. You're going you're gonna to be surrounded by idols. You thought you wanted Babylonian idolatry. That's what you're going to get until it makes you sick. I think I used the example a few weeks ago or the last time we were together of, you know, when you were a kid, some of you had this happen where, you know, if your dad caught you smoking, he'd go buy a pack of camel non-filters and make you smoke the whole pack. You'd get into, like, you know, you know, you're like 14 years old and you're smoking in the garage with some osium thinking that, you know, that my, nobody will smell this smoke, you know, you know, and stuff, and then you get busted, and, and then, you know, but you don't even inhale. You don't even know that it's possible to inhale smoke because you're just, you know, hey, I'm, so, I'm totally cool, you know. And, and, uh, and then your dad comes out and he says, hey, smoke, no, smoke. And what are you talking about? Take that into your lungs. And man, you're green and you're just vomiting and you think, oh, that's it, I'm done smoking. That's my, you know, kind of sad story anyway. But anyway. <laughs> and so that's, that's the, so God says, hey, you want idolatry? This is idolatry. And commentators are pretty universal in their conclusion that after the Babylonian captivity, the 70 years in Babylon, the Jews had problems. Uh, they continued to, you know, rebel against the Lord, but they never had a problem with idolatry again. They, they were done with idolatry. They effectively quit smoking, uh, and they, they were sick of that. Your trials and your afflictions may have something to do with God disciplining you for your own ultimate good. That is one possible purpose of affliction and trial. But not all suffering is a discipline. Some is part of the warfare we face in a world that is hostile to God, in which men, by the exercise of their free will, do terrible things. Uh, there's, There's kind of a... There's an armchair understanding among Christians that, well, if I'm in a trial, it's because I need to learn a lesson or God's just spanking me for something I did. And as soon as I repent of that, my trial will cease. And then after you've lived a while, you notice that some people's trials don't cease. They have lifelong trials. They have chronic illnesses. They have terrible things happen in their life. And it's not because they need discipline. It's not because they're wandering away from God. It's because we live in a world that is dominated by sin. It, it, it is controlled in one sense, in a limited sense, by the prince of the power of the air. At one point, we'll get to it in the Gospel of Matthew where the, the disciples are talking to Jesus and they're asking him a question. And Jesus says, hey, an enemy has done this. This is, we're, we're, you know, the world is in the state it's in because there's a war going on. And so uh, I, I only throw that out there because I don't want anybody to get freaked out thinking, well, my trial is still going on, so I guess I'm still in sin. 
I, I guess God doesn't love me or, or you know, there, there's something wrong with me. No, I mean, there's something wrong with the world. And it's that three-letter word, word, sin, and we're in a, a warfare against it. In those cases, God will use your suffering to reveal his strength in your weakness. That's what Paul the Apostle learned. He says, well, Lord, if you're going to let me have this thorn in the flesh, this messenger of Satan, then I will glory in my weakness so that your strength can be made uh, known and, and he will use it to reveal that his grace is always sufficient. In any situation, God's grace is sufficient. And he's promised to redeem your suffering. Whether now or in eternity, he will redeem it and cause all things to work together for the good. Now, in chapter 2, the prophet turns to Jerusalem and Judah, pleading with the people to turn to the Lord and repent. In verse 1 of chapter 2, he says, Gather yourselves together, yes, gather together, O desirable nation, undesirable nation, excuse me, before the decree is issued, or the day passes like chaff, before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you. Seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth, who have upheld his justice. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. It may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. In wrath, God remembers mercy. The burden is on men to repent. God gives plenty of warning and ample time. You know, when the Babylonian army comes and they're camped outside, and when they're coming over the wall, it seems like, man, what just happened? But God's given decades or sometimes centuries for people to repent and and given them ample warning of what he's going to do. And we saw in Nahum or excuse me, in Jonah, that um, all you have to do is repent and God will relent of the judgment that he said he was going to bring. But you really have to repent. You have to turn to and return to the Lord. And this is something I find lacking in modern or contemporary Christianity, this sense of repentance. Not, I don't think you can ever overexpand grace uh, you, you can never, uh, you know, overextend grace. Grace is a wonderful thing, but grace doesn't cancel out the need for real repentance in the life of a person who has sinned. People who have an, oh, well, I sinned attitude, what, you know, what do you want me to do? Uh, we're all sinners. You know, God doesn't care about that because he died on the cross for me. Hey, thanks. Uh, you know, there, there, there used to be, a, when people got caught sinning or maybe they caught themselves sinning, there was a sense of shame. There was a sense of, of unrighteousness. There was a sense of unholiness, of, of filthiness. You know, not that you would wallow in it because God's forgiveness is there. He cleanses you from all unrighteousness. But there, there's a missing step sometimes in contemporary Christianity of repentance where people just say, oh, yeah, we did that. Yeah, and, and now we're not doing that anymore or it's, it's no big deal. You know, it's a, no problem. I didn't, you know, uh, God's not worried about that. And, uh, you know, I, I can't see a person's heart, but I just, what I don't see is any, I, I, I fail to see real repentance sometimes with people. They just go on to the next thing. And, and uh, you know, um, God is willing to take somebody back, but they have to come on those terms. Now, from verse 4 into chapter 3, Zephaniah names various Gentile nations around Judah, and he announces that God will judge them for their sins as well. 
And then he closes out his message with a great far-sighted promise. Uh, look at chapter 3, verse 8. <clears throat> he says, therefore, wait for me, says the Lord, until the day I rise up for plunder. My determination is to gather the nations to my assembly of kingdoms, to pour on them my indignation, all my fierce anger, all the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. That's, to me, clearly a prediction of the battle of Armageddon. Then he says in verse 9, for then I will restore to the people a pure language, Italian, that they may all call on the name of the Lord. Hey, we don't know, so that's my best guess. Uh, With one accord, from beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. In that day, you shall not be shamed for any of your deeds in which you transgress against me. For then I will take away from your midst those who rejoice in your pride, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. I will leave in your midst a meek and humble people, and they shall trust in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel shall do no unrighteousness, speak no lies, nor shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth, for they shall feed their flocks and lie down, and no one shall make them afraid. God will one day regather his people, punish the Gentile nations, restore Israel and Judah to their land. As I said, verse 8 is a prediction of the battle of Armageddon when all the nations shall gather against Jerusalem in the last days. But Jesus Christ will return and judge the nations and then establish his kingdom, gather the scattered Jews, cleanse them of their sin, establish his righteous kingdom sitting upon David's throne in Jerusalem. And so what is revival? We mentioned that at the beginning. And as indicated earlier, it's something that can affect both non-believers as well as believers. Revival is making alive those who are dead. Those who are dead would be non-believers. They're described in the Bible as dead in trespasses and sins. Spiritually dead, needing to be made alive by God. We would call this aspect of revival evangelism. This is our understanding of, hey, there's a revival where people are coming and coming to the Lord and getting saved. But revival is also restoring the life of those who are already alive, These are believers whose walk with the Lord lacks vitality. They have the Holy Spirit, but as Billy Graham would say, the Holy Spirit does not have them. Uh, Leonard Ravenhill is quoted as saying, evangelism affects the other fellow, revival affects me. And so there can be a reviving, uh, sometimes in the New Testament, uh, Paul the Apostle say, awake, arise, stir up. You know, this is a a coming back to a more of a vital Christian walk as a believer. Josiah experienced revival, and so did a remnant after him, while most of the Jews did not. It looked like a national revival, but it was only in the hearts of a very few who were genuinely transformed. It was only a national revival because the king was revived, and he said, and you're revived too because uh, this is what we're going to do, and I'm the king. And so uh, it was good. Don't get me wrong. It was good for the nation, but it didn't last because it was shallow. It didn't have any root. He was king at eight years old, came to know the Lord at age 16. He began to wage a war against idolatry in the land. And then, as I said, in the 18th year of his reign, he proceeded to repair and beautify the temple, which by the time by time and violence had become sorely dilapidated. While this work was being carried on, Hilkiah, the high priest, discovered a scroll, which was probably the copy of the entire uh, Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. When this book was read to the king, he was alarmed by the things it contained because he realized that they weren't doing any of those things. 
And he sent for a prophetess named Huldah. She spoke to him words of encouragement, telling him that he would be gathered to his fathers in peace before the threatened days of judgment came. And so Josiah immediately gathered the people together. He engaged them in a renewal of their ancient covenant with God. The Passover was celebrated for the first time in a while. Now, you and I are believers who are hopefully fighting idolatry in our lives. So uh, there's a, I want to draw a parallel here as we close to Josiah. Josiah got saved, you're saved. Josiah fought against idolatry. You and I, on some level, are fighting against idolatry. There are things from all of our pasts or, you know, maybe we didn't get saved later in life. We've been saved our whole life, things that kind of insert themselves. But idolatry and covetousness are a battle that we fight. And so we're like Josiah in that extent. We, too, can rediscover God's neglected word either by reading it if we haven't been or by applying it if we've been reading it too casually. There can always be a a refreshing, a revival, or we we jokingly say a re-Bible in our lives. You can always get deeper into God's Word. And this isn't a, you know, it's not a rebuke to people that they're not reading their Bible in one year, you're not reading enough or anything. But, you know, we're all over the map. Some of us, we're not reading our Bible on a daily basis, even though we may have been Christians for 30 years. We don't have a reading plan. Maybe some of us are doing that, but we're not really studying the Word. Uh, we're not really sharing the Word, or we're not really applying the Word. And so wherever you're at in your relationship to the Word of God, you can experience a refreshing and a revival in that. You can get really excited about the Bible. I, I, I've shared this before, and I'm... I have to share it with myself. I'm I'm throwing this out there for myself. I remember when I was a young Christian, back in the day of cassette tapes, I remember when Bob Coy handed, you know, he's holding up the cassette tape. Back in the day of the cassette tapes, I would go to church, I would listen to my pastor teach the passage, and he was a very good expository, verse by verse, you know, so I could understand what was going on. And then I would get the cassette tape, and because I was a salesman and I drove around a lot, I could listen to that same message maybe four more times during the week. You know, I'd, I'd start it and listen to it and start it and listen to it and get through it on a, you know, late Tuesday and start it again on Wednesday. And so I was hearing that message because I had a, I, I kind of felt in a naive way that God had led me to that church at that time to hear that message and I should really understand it and I could get into the word like that. And, and uh, so now maybe you're doing something like that. We all should be doing something like that. We think, hey, I have to hear the word of God. Uh, otherwise, it's, it's more important than my daily food, my necessary food. But not just to get someplace where I hear it or to casually turn on the radio and have it in the background, but to, to dig in and say, what is it that God is trying to teach me? And, and I would recommend that you start with your own church and say, hey, you know, God went to a lot of trouble to put this church together, whatever church is your home church, and to have this message, and so maybe, maybe this is for me on some level, and, and listen to it, read it. We have so many ways that you can encounter God's word. I was laughing on Sunday morning when Gene was going over all the different electronic things. You know, you can, you can download the transcript ahead of time. You can, re- you can read the message ahead of time and know where to laugh. Uh, you know, and, and, uh, and, and all of that, you can read it, then you can listen to it and read it at the same time, and you can listen to it again, you can watch it again, you can have a podcast or a webcast or a this cast or a that cast. You can do anything you want with the Word of God. And so at some level, all of us need to get excited about the Word of God. 
And we too can, what did Josiah finally did? He said, hey, we haven't celebrated the Passover in a long time, and so let's get it on. You can gather together with God's people. And, and um, just for the value of it in and of itself. Just say, hey, I, I, just, I need to be where God's people are because they need ministry and I need ministry. And so, you know, that is revival. You, you can't really, I mean, we're here, so I can say this to you. You can't sit at home and think I should go to church, but I'm not going to, and think that you're experiencing revival. Be, you know, Josiah, when he heard the, the, the word taught, he said, man, we're in trouble. We're not doing this. What should we do? We got to do something. He didn't say, well, that's cool. Let's frame that. Let's put that up over my office door or something like that. That would look nice outside, you know, hanging on the door when people come up. When the UPS man comes up, he could see the, the Pentateuch, you know. No, he got involved in it. He got engaged in it, which you guys are doing by being here tonight. And so that's cool. We can pursue revival. That's the point that we're drawing from Zephaniah tonight. You can pray for revival, and you should. But while we're waiting for God to bring a general revival, a sweeping saving of people and refreshing of Christians, individually, you and I can pursue revival by fighting idolatry in our lives, by reading the word of God, by fellowshipping with other Christians. Do you remember a few years ago the ads for the search engine Yahoo? Remember their slogan? Do you Yahoo? And then they go, Yahoo! Maybe our slogan this year ought to be, do you pursue? Pursue. Just, I dare you, on Sunday morning, just go up to somebody and say, hey, do you pursue? And say, man, you missed it on Wednesday night. Father, thank you for this word from Zephaniah. I pray that we would be and remain revived this year. And I pray it in Jesus' name, amen.